You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Romans 6 verse 14, For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us this, your word. And Father, as we look to your word, Father, we see that there are many things that are hard for us to understand. Uh, Even Peter comments as such concerning Paul's writings. And Father, we look to you. I call on you, Father, to empower myself, to empower us, Lord, that um, you would give us understanding, but the kind of understanding that is a saving knowledge of Christ Jesus, the kind of understanding that, that truly transforms us, that changes our hearts, that puts the truths that are in these verses really into um, uh, work in our lives for your glory. So, Father, uh, we, we pray that it would be much more than, uh, than meeting the curiosity of those who like theology, but that, Father, you would take these truths and really put them into our lives and really truly transform uh, our worldviews and our, our actions, uh, our thinking processes, uh, Uh, transform us by these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. I'd like to introduce uh, the message this morning by calling your attention to what, at least in my notes here, I have have the words divine order. Um, This morning on the way in, I was thinking maybe I should put that as inspired order instead of divine order, but... uh, I think either will do. Uh, What I'm referring to is that one of the benefits of teaching the books verse by verse, working our way through the scriptures, is that I don't really choose what subject we entertain next. Um, You can read ahead for yourself and see what's coming. Um, What's coming next is what God has given us next. And as we do this, we don't do this for very long until we discover that there's, there's, a, there's a divine order 
There's an inspired order, if you will, to what's coming next. If you just, you know, it's been a little while since we've done this and we should do this often. If you just turn the pages a couple back, a couple pages back to Romans 1 and look at how, you know, it's been a while since we've done this and let's just look at the order of things we have here. Paul gives us a greeting. There's nothing unusual about a greeting in an ancient letter. Ancient letters often had uh, this form of greeting. Uh, uh, Paul introduces his subject at hand. He says that uh, that this uh, what he is presenting is the gospel uh, of God. It's not Paul's gospel. Uh, it's not Peter's gospel, uh, so to speak. It's whose gospel? It's God's gospel. And uh, Paul, uh, then we haven't said a whole lot about this. We will talk about this as we go, but. You notice that verse 8 and and forward, some of you will have a little uh, subheading there, a longing to go to Rome. I don't think I've made one single comment concerning that, and uh, this is the 31st message that I've preached in Romans. Uh, That's not really a failure on my part. Uh, We're going to get to it, but uh, I'm pointing it to you now that Paul has a purpose. He's a a missionary. He's he's wanting to... Uh, he's wanting to go to Rome and kind of set up shop there. And from Rome, his desire is to go to Spain. We're going to look at that as we continue on. Um, but for the subject at hand, verses 16 and 17, Paul presents really what many call the theme of, of Paul's letter to the Romans. Uh, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Whose gospel? God's gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And then what comes next in the divine order of things, in the, in the inspired order of things, what comes next? What comes next is what we're always tempted to skip. And that is the bad news of the gospel, isn't it? We're always tempted to skip that because I think if I think if we like sharing this, uh, we really need help. Um, if we like telling people that there is no one who does good, no, not one altogether have become worthless. Uh, if we like sharing that, I think we need help. Um, that shouldn't be something that we like to share. But there's a divine order here. Paul first gives the bad news of the gospel. Why? Because the good news of the gospel doesn't make a lot of sense until we have taken in and we have actually embraced the bad news of the gospel. As I've shared with some of you, you know, very recently I, I, I put a Facebook page together. and I, Sometimes I'm doing things on there. I don't really know what I'm doing. I've had a couple people. I had one person call me and want to know what in the world I'm doing. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, he was really upset. He's somebody from Pennsylvania somewhere. I have no idea what he's talking about. He said I messaged him. I, I don't know. Boy, he was really upset, man. I don't. I have no idea what I did or what in the world. Um, I, one of the reasons I just haven't sat down with it. I don't really care enough about it to sit down with it and figure out how it works. But one thing I do notice is is a, there's a news feed, right? Is that what it is? It's like a news feed thing. You're all laughing at me. But there's like this news feed thing, you know, and you flip through it and, and um, you know, people are, are, are I, this part I do figure out, like when people um, send their friend requests, 
I asked Maggie at the office, I said, Maggie, are we friends? She goes, well, or, or, or I said something. What did I say to you? I said, I don't have any friends, you know, or something like that. And then she said, well, I friend requested you like three days ago, and you've been ignoring me. Well, I could actually be offending somebody. I don't even know it. I'm like, well, what do I do? So you hit that button. It says confirmed friend. Well, now we're friends, you know. Um, well, others are starting to do this, and I'm starting to hit the buttons, you know, and I got this part down. I hit the button. But now I'm starting to get stuff that's like really crazy, wacky stuff. And I start looking down through the, 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 the things, and there's so much rhetoric about, uh, about how we're, uh, we deserve this, you know, and we deserve that. And I'm not perfect, you know, but, uh, but I'm amazing. And you have all this stuff that's the exact opposite of what Paul is teaching here. So in the divine order of things, you know, there's there's an order here. Uh, as we begin to share the gospel, we can't skip the bad news. And preaching through the books like we do, it it we don't choose our subjects. It, quite frankly, I think that if I was only committed to doing topical preaching, when would I ever really get around to teaching the bad news of the gospel? I really wouldn't want to do that. Okay, everybody, uh, last week's message was uh, real upbeat and encouraging, but this week is going to be the polar opposite. Uh, this week, there is no one who does good, no one, and, and et cetera, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, I wouldn't enjoy that. Actually, I kind of like the fact that um, it's all kind of built in, you know? God's given it to us in His order. So if we just preach through the books, and I'm not saying, by saying this, I'm not saying that topical preaching is wrong. There's times when I do it myself. But I'm largely committed to just preaching through the books because I think God knows what we need when we need it better than Rick Anderson knows what we need and what, when we need it. Uh, now, I'm, uh, I'm pointing this to your attention because here we get the bad news of the gospel, which spans from Romans 1.18 all the way through Romans 3.20. That's a lot of space, isn't it? That's a lot of verses. I counted them once upon a time. I forget how many there are. I think 64 comes to mind. 64 verses. Um, I, if, you were, if you like the accounting of it all, you can count them and see if that's true. Um, but in verse 21 of chapter 3, Paul now begins to give us the good news in the divine order of things, in the inspired order of things. And he says that righteousness comes through faith. We study these verses very carefully. He looks at Abraham, our forefather. Uh, was he justified by his works? Was he justified by being an amazing guy? Was he justified by uh, church attendance? Was he justified by the stars that he got because he taught Sunday school for 50 years without missing a single Sunday? No, that is not why he was justified. He was justified and able to stand in God's court and receive the blessings of the gospel because he believed the promises that God had made to him. And Paul is pointing out that that's how everybody has come to get right with God uh, throughout the whole span of things. There isn't this plan for Abraham and another plan for Moses and another plan for David and another plan for us. It's always been the same plan. Uh, which is what Paul is teaching us in chapter 4. Chapter 5, Paul begins, he continues to, uh, to uh, open up what he has been saying in, in Romans 3 and 4. Uh, we have the, uh, the subject of the uh, first Adam and the subject of the second Adam, which we looked at in, in great detail. Adam comes in and he fails. 
He's in a probationary period. He's given uh, promises. Uh, He doesn't keep them. He fails. Christ comes after him as the second Adam and Christ succeeds, correct? And Paul makes some statements in Romans 5, which we've talked a lot about, some uh, potential objections that he has heard. And again, I point to the divine order of things here. Paul is uh, uh, in, uh, in Romans 5 and verse 20, Paul makes the statement that the law came in to increase the trespass. Uh, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And you remember my illustration for this. Um, uh, if we were first century Jews and we heard Paul say that the law has come to increase the trespass, I, I think we'd be looking for some rocks. Um, I think they would enrage us so much that we would look for some rocks because it was largely believed that God gave the law actually to increase righteousness. But the law actually served to do the exact opposite. And you know, my, you know my illustration about the piano downstairs. When we used to meet downstairs, Peg, you remember meeting downstairs. There were lions everywhere in that room. Remember you said you were kind of, found them kind of creepy. There were lions everywhere. Uh, it was the lion's room. That's what they call it. And outside the door, there was this piano that no one paid any attention to until one day someone put a sign on, keep your fingers off the piano or something. And here we got... You know, all these eight fingers and these two thumbs, and that's just too many fingers and thumbs to try to keep off of things when we're told to keep them off of things, you know. And that's the whole point. What does the law do? Another illustration is when we're kids. We're kids, we're out playing, and suddenly we're curious about doing something that we realize is a little bit beyond the boundaries of where we should be. And we think to ourselves, well, um, this mom and dad probably wouldn't approve of this. Uh, but let's go ahead and do it. Okay, you're, you're expecting probably some level of reprimand for doing it, but you were never told you couldn't do it. But let's suppose if you were told you couldn't do it and you did it anyway. Come on, we've all been there, haven't we? What does the parental command do? It makes the sin worse, doesn't it? It increases the trespass. Now, what Paul is saying is the law has come to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, Paul says grace has abounded all the more. And that's the good news of the gospel, isn't it? In essence, we could put it this way. Our sins are bad. Okay, we've been through Romans 1. We've been through Romans 2. We've been through Romans 3. I think, if I remember right, 64 verses showing us how bad we are, and we really don't, no matter how bad you are, it's worse. And Paul is now telling us that the law has come to make us even worse. And then Paul turns around and says, listen, it's real bad, but God's grace is greater than your sin. Now that's good news. When it's received correctly, it is life-transforming news. But there are those who would object and say, wait a second, Paul, you can't preach that kind of stuff. If you preach that kind of stuff, people are just going to live however they choose. People are just going to say, well, why not sin? Let's continue to sin so that we'll see God's forgiveness in new and fresh ways. And that's how chapter six begins, isn't it? 
What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. And what's interesting is Paul doesn't reprimand. I think we might have been inclined to reprimand right here and there. And again, I point your attention to the divine order of things. I think we need to pay close attention to this. Paul doesn't give what we call the imperative right now. What's the imperative? Commands. He doesn't give a bunch of commands in this reprimanding way. Instead, he gives what we call the indicative. Now, you've heard me talk about indicative, imperative, indicative, imperative. Imperative is a command. Indicative is a mood for those who are into grammar. There's a couple of us here probably into grammar and say, you know, indicative is a mood, if you will, that states a fact. It's a mood that states a fact. If you look it up in some dictionaries, it'll, it might, if you look up imperative, it might say uh, that which uh, is a statement of fact. Uh, compare with subjunctive. You get to say the word subjunctive. You know, the subjunctive, if I might stay on this just for a second, bear with me. The subjunctive mood is the kind of mood where uh, we're stating something we would desire to be true or we imagine would be true. Uh, I've been organizing my garage, uh, for example. Uh, Why am I organizing my garage? Well, one of the reasons I'm doing it is so that I might be able to find things efficiently. Right? Is that something that is, um, is it a state of fact at the moment? In some sense it is. There's some things that I'm very organized right now with some things. But in other areas, it's something that I imagine will be soon uh, like this everywhere in the garage. So that's the subjunctive. But you see the indicative, the indicative is a statement of fact. In the divine order of things. God gives us the statement of fact before he gives us the commands. And we do very well to pay attention to that, not only for our own well-being, but so that we can help other people. We don't just burden each other with commandments. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. We have to tell people this. I'm speaking of believers here. We have to tell people what they are in Christ Jesus. Thus, last week's message, be what God has made you to be. That's the indicative. That's a statement of fact. Here's a statement of fact. Are you in Christ Jesus this morning? If the answer is yes, you are not identified by your sin. Oh, how easy it is to identify ourselves with our past sins, isn't it? That's not your identity. Those past sins. Is not, that's not, not if you're in Christ. Your past starts with death. What's Paul say? Verse 2, Romans 6. How can we who what? Died to sin, still live in it. We've been over this quite a bit. When we became believers, what happened? We were united with Jesus so closely that what has taken place with his body in the spiritual sense has taken place with us as well. What happened to Jesus? He was crucified. He died. Why was he there? For his own sins? No, he never committed any sins. Jesus was there. He died for our sins. 
And faith unites us to Christ Jesus. What, what do we mean by faith? As soon as we take Christ to be ours, we take him to be ours. How do we take him to be ours? We believe his promise that if we take him, if we believe in him, we'll have remission of sins, that those sins will be pardoned, that we will get a new life in Christ Jesus. When we believe that promise, we embrace Christ in faith. When we embrace Christ in faith, here is a statement of fact. The old person who was in Adam in the first man dies from that old realm. And the new person is born again, born all over in Christ Jesus. So Paul begins in this divine order of things. He begins by telling us who we are in Christ Jesus before he gives us any commands. And we need to internalize that. Especially on those weeks, you know, I mean, today might be an easy day for you, you know, because, you, you know, you manage to get up, you manage to come to church, you're going to pray a little bit and we'll be feeling really good. You know, we serve the Lord today. I mean, it's feeling really good. He, he must really love me today. You know, I bet he loves me a lot today. Are we going to do like, are we going to do this good tomorrow? What's tomorrow going to be like? <laughs> for that matter, what's this afternoon going to be like? You'd say, well, tomorrow, you're talking about tomorrow. I just like to get through today. What's Tuesday like? Wednesday, hey, maybe we'll come to Bible study and it'll be back, you know, we're tracking with God again. Or maybe we'll come Wednesday and we'll say, you know, I haven't prayed since Sunday. And I really wasn't praying. I was kind of daydreaming while the preacher was praying, you know. It's not your identity if you're in Christ. And... Um, that's, that's not our past if we're in Christ either. You know, the little flower and the, 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 the girl has the little flower in the yard, you know, and she's got her heart set on a boy. And, or is, is that the opposite? It's the boy who has his heart set on the girl. Either way or work. And he pulls a, he plucks off a, a um, part of the flower and says, she loves me. Uh, she loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. And how does it work? If there's still one left, does he love? How's that work? Do you remember what I'm talking about? We can kind of do that with God, you know, looking at our past performance. He loves me. Um, oh, he loves me not. Oh, he loves me. Oh, he, he loves me not. That's uh, we've got to get that out of our head if we're going to make any progress, because you see, all of that is going back to the way we were in Adam. That's all going back to living in Adam. And that's what Paul is trying to show us. He's trying to show us who we are in Christ Jesus. Okay. Um, he gives us in verse 14. Last week I said just a couple of words about verse 14. We might ask ourselves as we're thinking about the divine order of things, we might ask ourselves, what is the, what is the role of verse 14 because if you read verse 12, verses 12 and 13, verse 14 kind of, I don't know, does it fit? Verse 12, Paul begins to give, actually begins to be give, given imperatives in verse 11. You know, he's given the indicative in the divine order of things. Now he's given the imperative. He says, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You see that? In other words, you must reckon yourself dead to sin, alive in Christ Jesus. Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. 
Verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself uh, to God as those who have been uh, brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Okay, Uh, verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Okay, what, what role is verse 14 playing in Paul's over, uh, overarching argument, in Paul's argument here? What role is verse 14 playing? John Calvin, I, I, I just love what John Calvin said about verse 14. When we think about these imperatives, verses 12, verses 13, how well do we do at this? How well do we do at keeping God's commandments? How well do we do at tracking with the Lord in the way we really want to track with Him? How well do we do at that? You see, I used to think early on that the more I grew in Christ, the more I would see Christ-likeness in my life. Some of you are already starting to wave your head. You know where I'm going. But the longer you walk with Christ, what do you see? Over time, he shows us more and more of what's wrong, doesn't he? And if you go up to someone who's spiritually mature in Christ and you, see, and you say to them, well, I wanted you to know that you're a real inspiration to me. I mean, you are so godlike. People who are really mature will think to themselves, whoa, whoa, why? Because in their long walk with Christ, they've come to see more and more areas. God has very gently and lovingly shown them more and more areas where we are far off the mark. What's his goal in this? It's to show us his grace because it's his grace that transforms us. It would overwhelm us to do this at the beginning, wouldn't it? If you knew all this about yourself on day one, what would that have been like? To have had this avalanche all at once, boom, it would have been overwhelming. Calvin used to talk a lot about that. He'd say, we would faint. We would faint. So Christ just shows us enough to get us get our attention. And then he shows us his grace. Where your sin is increased, the grace is abounded all the more. And he'll show us a little more. He'll show oh. Wow, you're really that big, God. Yeah, he's barely just keeps just just keep just don't change the channel. He'll show us a little more, and he gets bigger, and he gets bigger, and he gets bigger, and he gets bigger. And then one day, someone young in the faith comes up to you and says, "Man, I just want you to know you're a real inspiration to me." And you're gonna go, "Well, uh, listen, I'm not the one you want to be looking at. I'm happy that." that God's using me in this way. And don't disdain that because God does use more mature men and women to come alongside the less mature. That's an important part. But point them to the Savior. Point them to the one. That's what you're going to want to do anyway, isn't it? Point them to the one who really is perfect. Christ Jesus. Amen. Why do we have verse 14? Paul says, sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but grace. What does that mean? This is one is it is so it is so misunderstood uh, today. I, you know, in the course of my reading, uh, 
over the last couple of weeks, I've jotted down a couple of notes and, and actually I've finessed them really into, as I've thought about conversations I've had and, and different folks that I've, I've heard speak about this. You'll hear people quote verse 14 sometimes. You'll hear people quote the second part of it. I'm not under law, I'm under grace. How many have heard people quote that before? You know, if you've heard that before, raise your hand. You'll hear people quote that. We're not under law, but we're under grace. I've heard fathers tell their children that. You know, listen, we're not under law, but we're under grace. And I couldn't help but to think in the context of what they were saying that in is like, it almost sounded to me like they were saying, listen, we don't have any more rules. And that's the way this is understood by some. There's no more rules. Uh, we're not under law, but we're under grace. So there's no more rules. Or how many have heard this one? The New Testament doesn't repeat the commandments. Has anybody ever heard that one before? Like, you'll, here's what you'll sometimes hear. The New Testament doesn't repeat the commandments, but it repeats the principles of the commandments. So we don't, we're not under the law anymore. Uh, we just walk by these principles. And some of you are going to scratch your head. If this is the first time you've ever heard this, you're scratching your head thinking, well, how different could the principles look from the commandment itself? It kind of sounds like the same, doesn't it? Or um, another way some people will say it, this one, I put this kind of in my own words, but it comes out like this a lot. Um, Old Testament guys had to follow the law. You know, the Old Testament guys? Um, we're not Old Testament guys. We're New Testament guys. Thank goodness we're not Old Testament guys. And there are even churches that call themselves New Testament churches. We're a New Testament church. I have a very good friend of mine at one time. He's moved on. The Lord's moved him. Uh, and I've lost truck, track of him. But he's a very was a very good friend while he was living in the air. And he told me, he said, we're a New Testament church. And the first time he told me that, I thought, that's curious. What does that mean? And uh, he began to tell me. And, I'm, and I, so I began to question him. I'm like, well, do you guys, so you don't preach from the Old Testament? He goes, no, nah, not really. We're a New Testament church. The New Testament has replaced the Old Testament. And, and I'm thinking, wow, okay, no Proverbs, no Psalms, uh, no Genesis narratives. Uh, what did, you guys don't do David and Goliath in Sunday school? I mean, what does all that mean? Come on, we got to do David and Goliath in Sunday school. I mean, um, what does all that mean? Well, there's various explanations of that, and that's today's not the day for that. But um, we'll have all of these various explanations of Romans 14. Well, we also have Paul's opponents. I mean, Paul's opponents in the first century... Uh, they're hearing this and they're going to say, wait a second, Paul, you keep preaching this stuff. You preach that we're not under law, but we're under grace. And you're going to lead everybody into heathendom. Because we have to have the restraints of the law. We have to have uh, the commandments in order not only to curb our behavior. Uh, we have to have the guidance of the law or we're going to be like heathens. Now, how's Paul? Uh, what does Paul say? How does Paul react to that? He says in verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Look at verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Paul actually answers these objectors by pointing to an illustration that involves slavery. Now, first thing we've got to get out of our heads is what Paul means by slavery. 
It's not what we typically think of when we think of slavery. It's not the kind of slavery that took place in the United States in the 18th and 19th centuries. Ancient slavery was quite different. Uh, ancient slavery didn't look like uh, people getting aboard a ship and floating off to a foreign land and kidnapping and abducting young men and women and bringing them against their will back and selling them as human machines. That's not what Paul's talking about. I, I don't think Paul, if that's what slavery meant, Paul wouldn't really be able to use this illustration. That's not what slavery meant to this culture. What slavery meant to this culture was, let's suppose we fell on hard times. We ended up in a ton of debt that we couldn't pay. You could seek out a wealthy landowner and you could voluntarily sell yourself to that landowner. And the landowner would satisfy that debt and now you would become a slave, if you will, a bond servant uh, of this landowner. Now, uh, that landowner would pay you a wage. Uh, typically, you would receive wages. And if you so desired, you could save up and buy your freedom. The New Testament speaks about freedmen. How many have encountered that word in the New Testament if you've read it, or Christian literature if you read it? The word freedman. A freedman was a person who had saved up enough money in order to buy themselves back out of slavery. But you know what a lot of these folks would do after they became freedmen? They'd lived with the landowner so long, had children. Uh, the landowner, they all became part of a family. Some of them would even take the, last, take the name, if you will, uh, of the wealthy landowner. And they would remain there. Now, we can start to see what Paul's illustration is like once we understand that background. Paul says in verse 16, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? If I'm on the verge of bankruptcy and I decide that I'm going to sell myself to Cody, he's going to pay my debt. I now become a bondservant to Cody, you see. Now, what Cody tells me to do, that's what I'm going to do. He tells me to go out and work his fields, I'm going to work his fields. He tells me to take care of the barns or whatever it might be. Uh, that's what I'm going to do. He's paid the debt, now I'm his bondservant. Now, look what Paul says here. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? <laughs> either of sin, which leads to death. Now, what's Paul talking about there? What is sin? Sin is enslavement. In fact, that's the kind of thing that God has, has delivered us from, right? We are slaves to sin prior to coming to Christ Jesus. We are delivered from that. Sin, which leads to death. And look at the second part. Or obedience, which leads to what? Righteousness, obedience, which leads to righteousness. Now, the point that I want to make this morning, uh, the point that I want to make this morning is that in either case, whether you're a slave to sin or you're a slave to obedience, you're still a slave. Everyone in this room is a slave to something. You know, I always like to use Bob Dylan as my illustration for this one. 
you know? Um, not because he's a great theologian, but because he wrote this song, you know, called You Gotta Serve Someone, you know? You've heard that song before. Oh, you know, you gotta serve someone. You know, what's he saying there? He's saying every one of us serves someone. Freedom is a big word in our culture, isn't it? Freedom is a huge word in our culture. But what does freedom mean to our culture? Freedom means freedom to do whatever you want. Free to transgress any boundary. In fact, the more boundaries you're transgressing, the the more free you are. But Paul is saying, listen, this is an illusion. It's a complete illusion. We're either slaves to sin, which leads to death, or we're slaves to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But either way, we're slaves. Now, what could be freeing about being a slave? Well, we're made in such a way that we have to serve something. God created us to serve. We're wired up to serve. We're going to serve something. And here's the part that without God's intervention in our lives, we will never understand is that freedom actually is found in serving Christ. Especially today. I mean, you know, if you, if you look at verse 16, the very end of it, Paul speaks about, you know, you're slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. How many in our culture today really care about righteousness? And for that matter, in the church, how many of us really care about? I was thinking about this, you know, our culture. I mean, when I was in my sins, you know, doing what I was doing in my sins, I didn't really care about righteousness. But that should be perfectly understandable. But what about in the church? Like, if we decided we were going to have a seminar, you know, on righteousness, and, you know, we got busy and we made all the bulletins and we made all kind of pamphlets and we got busy, you know, you get them out at 7-Eleven, you get them down at Cheney's, you get them all bulletin boards, Sparkle, get them all over the place, you know, in a month's time. Uh, we're going to have this uh, Friday evening and Saturday for half a day, we're going to have a, a seminar on righteousness. We're bringing in some speakers, people are going to be talking, we're going to have some workshops, and the whole idea is going to be righteousness, you know. How many takers do you think we'd have? You guys are laughing. Which would you expect a large crowd? We've got to find a way to make righteousness attractive. Righteousness has fallen on hard times. And, you know, I want to I want to close with this. How do we sell righteousness? If if freedom is an obedience, which leads to righteousness, if freedom is slavery in Christ Jesus, which leads to righteousness. How do we how do we sell that? I think we have I think we have one really good answer. You know, when you're in Sunday school class and I'll give you a little tip when you're in Sunday school ta- class and the Sunday school teacher asks you a question, you have no idea what the question um, what the answer of the question is. You, you say Jesus, you know? Just say Jesus and got a good chance of having the answer right. Um, if you don't know what the answer to the question is, just say Jesus and um, the answer is right. How do we sell righteousness? We sell righteousness 
by, by pointing people to Christ. Now, it's been my experience, although I think this is changing. I think it's changing. But it's my, my experience that most people have a certain level of admiration for Christ. It's a real funny thing. In our sins, we're enemies with Christ. That's a theological truth. But even in the midst of that, we're so twisted up, there's still, there, there's still a certain level of admiration. Jesus was a good teacher, if you will. He was, um, he was a man who, you know, he healed people and he, you know, he did a bunch of good stuff. And he was a guy that was, you know, he had integrity. He died for what he believed in. Uh, you'll still hear, that's changing. Uh, Tammy and I were coming back from Steubenville the other day. And, or I'm sorry, I was by myself. I was by myself. I was coming back from, from somewhere and I saw a bumper sticker that I'd never seen before. Maybe some of you have seen it, but it had a picture of a, bron- a brontosaurus. I think it was a brontosaurus. And it said, and it had a picture of an ichthus, you know, the, the Christian, the fish, the Jesus fish. And it had a picture of the brontosaurus eating the Jesus fish. And it said, my dinosaur ate your Jesus fish. Has anybody seen that? My dinosaur ate your Jesus fish. Um, that's what's coming around the pike, friends. But I think for the most part, people that you talk to are going to have a certain level of respect for Jesus. And I think we sell righteousness by pointing to the beauty of Christ. One of the most beautiful aspects of Jesus was his enslavement to obedience to the Father. He says in John 4.34, uh, let, me, let me start with Psalm 45.7. That's why we read Psalm 45 in the, in the service, uh, the beginning of the service. Psalm 45 and verse 7 says, You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. The author to the letter of Hebrews applies that verse to Christ Jesus. But Jesus himself, during his earthly ministry, said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 6.38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. The most, the, the man, in terms of his humanity, Jesus enjoyed a freedom that, that no one else has ever enjoyed. And he was completely enthralled and enslaved and obeying the Father's will. And the Garden of Gethsemane, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he fell on his face and he says, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now, um, think about this. Those of you who are parents, what is more beautiful than watching your children out of respect for what you've told them and taught them. Watching them obey. Out of sheer respect for you, out of a healthy desire to want to please you. And usually these snapshots occur when they don't know we're looking. And we see them. What are they doing? They're, they're, li- they're, they're living what we taught them. The value systems that we taught them. A lot of times we catch them doing stuff they shouldn't do. But sometimes, sometimes we see them doing 
exactly what we desired them to do. And we're never more proud, are we? And the Father says so much in observing Christ Jesus. He says in a couple places in the Gospel, this is my Son with whom I am what? I am well pleased. And what Jesus has given us is the ability to follow in His footsteps. So that when God looks at us, He can see the same thing. We're not saved by this righteousness. We're only saved by the righteousness of Jesus. This is in no ways meritorious. This is just a matter of thanksgiving back. We don't earn our parents' love. Not if the health of the family is healthy. We don't earn their love. We have their love. Why do we obey our parents? Because they love us. Because we want to please them. Why do we obey God? Because He loves us, you see. If, if obedience is going to come our way, if we are going to walk, we've got to understand this. You see the divine order of things? What has God done to us? He has so transformed us so that now we can actually choose. We can actually choose. We can make the choice when we go out that door to do things that will please the Father. Our, our activities aren't perfect. But you see, if you're in Christ, God is no longer your judge. He's your father. And that's what verse 14 is all about. What does verse 14 mean? You're not under law. Law is inflexible. It doesn't give. It says thou shalt not. And there's no loopholes. But Jesus suffers the penalty for our transgressions. So that now God is free to receive and accept our obedience, even with all of its flaws. Some of you have younger children at home. When there were, when there were youngsters running around in our house, we almost always had something on the refrigerator door that one of them had made. You know, the little paintings, you know, and the little things. And even sometimes the grandchildren will produce one for us. Some of them are getting a little old for that, but... You know, we don't set up a card on the sidewalk and sell these things, do we? No, the, 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 the abilities aren't up to that. We wouldn't sell them anyway because they're, 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 they're precious to us. Well, we receive them with all their flaws, don't we? We receive them with all their flaws because, um, because our children made them for us. And they're precious. And that's how God receives our, our obedience with all of its flaws, you know. That's how he receives us. Unless we understand these things, we're not going to make much progress in walking with God. Remember the divine order of things. What has God done? God is no longer a judge if you're in Christ Jesus. That's all. That's taken care of at the cross. He's now a loving, merciful, and compassionate Father. And he receives us in mercy and compassion and love. And that's the grandest motivator to obey him. Can we go on sinning with this news? Meganoita, by no means. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Father, for the wonders of the gospel and how overwhelming it is to preach, Father. How overwhelming it is to hear, how overwhelming it is to process. Father, this is truly magnificent news. 
that, um, Father, we could be transformed by Christ in such a way that uh, the old is gone and the new has come. And to offer ourselves as slaves of sin is, uh, should be unthinkable to us, Father. Help us to understand, help us to see the divine order of things, that we would begin to see that freedom, freedom is, is found in, in becoming a slave to you. And help us, O oh Father, to look at Christ. Help us to see his beauty. Help us to see, uh, Father, uh, how beautiful righteousness itself is and how pleasing it is to you. And may that overflow into our hearts that, Father, as we walk through this life, uh, may we, we so desire to walk in your ways, Father, where true freedom is found. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.